and welcome to Minute 168 of The Great Escape Minute, the daily podcast where we dig into The Great Escape one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me on this very special week where we're talking with people who have connections with the real escape is Jonathan Vance, professor of history, POW nerd, and all-around knowledgeable person about the Stalag Luft Three. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks very much, Rob. It's uh, good to be here with you. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been looking forward to, to having this discussion with you for, for many weeks, months, however you want to look at the, or minutes, mm-hmm. you can even say, <laughs> because I, I've, I've been fascinated to hear that you actually wrote a book about the escape. So we'll, we'll get to that a little later in, in this episode where you'll be able to tell us some interesting things that you found out about mm-hmm. the escape itself. Maybe maybe we'll talk about the differences between the movie and the escape, the, the original escape based from a uh, historical perspective. You know, from someone who actually has done the research, unlike me, who's just winging it and just... Uh... <laughs> I am I am at your service, Rob. All right. So, uh, Minute 168 begins with Ramsey continuing to answer queries of the numerous POWs that have now been returned to the camp and ends with Strachwitz looking at the staff car and then looking at the office where Van Luger is and looking back and forth and whatever. So we'll we'll get to that at the end of the minute. We'll explain what that is. So basically what we left off yesterday was that Henley and a number of the other POWs, the only other one that we actually can recognize by name is Nemo. So the, the two of them are standing in front of all the other returned escapees. I think if I remember correctly, there are 11 that we can see, or maybe it's 13. I don't, I don't remember offhand right now the exact number of the, what we discussed yesterday. They're, they're having a discussion with uh, Ramsey, who is informing them of the tragedy that has befallen 50 of their comrades who uh, unfortunately didn't make it back. So uh, yesterday we left it off that they started asking about different people. They were asking about Roger, and they were informed that Roger didn't make it. And then this minute actually begins with Nimmo asking, what about Haynes? Now, I, I found that very interesting because this, when I started doing this project, before I did this project, I didn't, I wasn't able to recognize the difference between uh, Nemo and some of the other prisoners mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And while I've been going through this, I've noticed that, that he and Haynes were always together. The two of them yep. did a lot of things together. They, they even escaped together. We saw them on the train together. So what really surprised me is that the character of Nemo, they, they actually somehow found a way to split them up without showing us what happened to them along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're great friends through the movie, and and um, as was the case in reality, separated sometime after they were captured. And uh, one survived, one didn't, which is not uh, uh, unusual at all given the real circumstances. Yes, right. I mean, you, you probably know better than, than, than I would if, if there was any rhyme or reason for the decisions of who they who they, they shot and who they sent back. I mean, in, in the movie, the, what my understanding is is that they decided to, you know, let, let the, all the American actors stay alive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or most of them, at least. It, I mean, it seems, yeah, it seems to have been uh, an, an equally random reason. They were, they were chosen um, uh, entirely randomly. Although, with the exception of Big X, he was probably condemned from the beginning. Uh, and the French Scheidhauer, the Frenchman he escaped with. But uh, uh, literally, it was just the luck of the draw, uh, whether your your prisoner ID card got put in one pile or another pile. Oh, wow. Okay. That's right. 
But I, I mean, I wonder if they even tried to, to film a scene showing, you know, the two of them actually getting captured, and then we could see, you know, what what they did wrong in order to to get captured. Yeah, that, that would have been interesting because of the fact that they they're pretty much the only two recognizable prisoners that they didn't show what happened to them after they made the escape. I mean, we we saw with yeah, Cedric and yeah. So it's, I mean, you can't show everybody. The the <laughs> filmmakers were faced with a huge task. Uh, and I think one of the great triumphs of the film is that they've combined and condensed a whole bunch of different individual people's experiences into a handful of yeah, central characters. No question about that. As as you say, there's a lot of escapers, and you can't you can't follow everybody. Uh, but what so what they did was created these composite characters that bring in uh, a little bit from four or five different people, and so you learn a lot more about. Uh, many more people's experiences than just the the number of key characters there are, which is a real it's a tricky yeah. thing to do. I mean, I'm, I'm sure putting the, putting this movie together was not simple from a script perspective. I mean, the, the the rumors you know about how difficult it was for for Sturgis to actually sell the idea of of uh, getting a, a movie made about an escape where everyone gets caught, you know, <laughs> or almost mm-hmm. everybody gets yeah, caught. Yeah. It doesn't sound like exactly. a winning idea. First, but, it, but it is. That's that's the irony of it all. Yeah. You know, who would have thought that that, or besides Sturgis, that that such an idea would have actually worked so well? Uh-huh. And I mean, one of the things also that I heard that Sturgis did was is the way that he he created, he built up the the story was it was done in a in like building blocks so that you couldn't take one part out mm-hmm. because then it would all tumble down. Everything was was based on other aspects of the story. I mean, there's there's an anecdote that I've heard in the past, and I might have mentioned it in, in a previous episode, but the fact that at one point they told Sturgis that the movie was a little too long and he had to cut the cut a scene, so they told him to cut the scene out with uh, Griffith showing all of showing Roger all the different tailoring things that oh, yeah, that, yeah. that he was able yeah. to do in the move in in the movie. You know, he says, okay, we can make vests and we can do this and we take the blankets and we make this. You know, the way that he explained the whole thing, and so he cut that scene out. And then he showed the, the he had a screening for a whole bunch of executives, and at the end, two executives came over to him and said, "Wow, this was such a great movie." But explain to me, where did they get the clothes that they were wearing when they when they made the escape? Uh-huh. So at that point, uh, Sturges went back to whichever executive told him that he needed to cut it out, and he said, "I'm putting it back in." <laughs> I told you so. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you're you're absolutely absolutely right. It's a remarkably well made film because there are all these things. You come through, come to a scene in minute ten, and you think, "Why is that in there?" And then you get to minute one hundred, and you say, "Oh, that's exactly. why I was there because it makes sense." So it really and and doing it minute by minute, you can you can see how much uh, really important stuff is packed into um, what is is you might call unfairly a fairly traditional action yes, movie. Exactly, I I wouldn't call it a fairly traditional, but I understand why you would say that. That's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm not offended by that. <laughs> Sturgeon. I happened to watch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's how he sold it. I mean, after the Magnificent Seven, which I happened to watch on this weekend, uh, this past weekend, um, in some ways he he sold it as Magnificent Seven Part Two. Well, he used the pretty much the same uh, cast. So uh, exactly, yeah, yeah. But I mean, in in this minute that we're looking at here, there's a there's a couple of really brief exchanges that have behind them a whole. A massive amount of historical content, and Sturgis is able to to put them across in in a flash, which is yeah. astonishing. 
Right. So then we continue with the conversation with between Ramsey and the other prisoners. So, you know, Nimoy asked about Haynes, and he goes, yes, I'm sorry. You know, Haynes was not the one who made it, which it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that the character of Haynes didn't make it because he was walking around in a German uniform, which, from what I understand, and you would know this probably better from a historical perspective, that was, a, you know, a no-no. <laughs> if you got caught wearing a German uniform and not being a German, you would be shot as a spy. Yeah, it was, but that was one, there was one uh, escaper who went out in German uniform. Um Oh, wow. A okay. Polish airman who had spoke perfect German, uh, and his thinking was that he could uh, travel um, north to the Baltic. His sister was living on the Baltic coast, uh, and he could could eat and stay in soldiers' oh, wow. uh, hostels along the way. So he was in his German uniform, and uh, I don't think that he, he was executed. I don't think that was what uh, cost him his life. I think it was the fact that he was Polish. Um, but people thought he was crazy, but, uh, it was, uh, it worked for him until something entirely unrelated. Oh, and got he him was recaptured. Fifth, yeah. Then basically they, this, then Ramsey says that Roger's idea was to get back at the enemy the hardest, the hardest way he could mess up the works. From what we've heard, I think he did exactly that, which is what you just mentioned. That, that's such a great line because it really encapsulates the whole essence of this movie about what they were trying to do and despite this tragedy of losing 50 of of the the prisoners they still know that they they accomplished what they were trying to do open up a, another front yeah and i um over the years i talked to a lot of uh survivors of the great escape when they were still around a lot of people who lost their their fathers and brothers and husbands and and uh, close friends, and the the one question we always got around to is I think the question that Henley asked was it worth it? Um, and I can see that if you and some ex prisoners are are livid about the fact that it was allowed to occur at that time of the war, um, and obviously if, if you lost a loved one. Uh, in the escape, you you have a particular view of it, but I think there's no question that it had a catastrophic impact on uh, the the uh, Nazi state. Yeah, I mean the fact that that, that it all it went all the way to Hitler to, for him to make the decision to to he wanted to execute them all, and they had to convince him all the way to Hitler, and and that very morning, so uh, a few hours after the tunnel was found. Uh, it was known at the very highest levels of, of German command, and it created a, a rift between different parts of the Nazi uh, hierarchy um, that that really never healed. Um, so certainly those 50 deaths were um, in, in a kind of cold accounting sense, they were certainly worth it. Right. Uh, I mean, 50, 50 is what, seven Lancaster crews, seven bomber crews? <laughs> It's true. Uh, so not a lot, and and they did more to continue the fight than than uh, they could ever have imagined. So that's why that scene is is really uh, good because of that kind of philosophical. Yeah, no uh, question. About it. I mean, when 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 uh, in uh, Brickhill's book, he mentions the fact that based on the figures that they were able to put together, they they assumed that there were about five million Germans that spent some of their time looking for these prisoners. And that thousands of them were on the job full time for weeks. So if that's yeah. the case, they they definitely got that. I mean, think about it: five million German troops 
were, were, were searching for these 76 prisoners. I mean, that, and these that's were astounding. Guys who could have been doing something useful. Thankfully, they weren't. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, w within a few hours, they had mobilized uh, about 70,000 auxiliaries um, on the morning of the 25th. And then they just kept piling on the numbers to try and... So, so eventually, by a week later, when there's uh, still just two guys outstanding, um, these two guys are being pursued by, uh, by that time, probably three, three and a half million uh, German police and soldiers. And they're just two guys. That's a pretty, pretty effective use of manpower. Uh, or a pretty effective uh, misuse of manpower. Misuse of that part. <laughs> <laughs> they say that's a good use of it, but but yeah, you're 100 percent right about that. I mean, and then you know we we could debate for for a very long time the you know the the philosophical aspects of whether it was worth it or not. I mean that that's that's essentially the, the continuation of the conversation between Henley and Ramsey, where Henley basically asks Ramsey if he thinks it was worth the price, and Ramsey yeah, says, "Well, exactly. That all depends on your point of view." Yeah. So if if you're if you lost your husband or your father or your or your son, you're going to have one point of view. If if like me, you can be a historian and and kind of sit in your objectiveness, uh, you have a, another answer. But yeah, the, you're you're quite right. There's it's a discussion that'll go on. Uh, uh, ad infinitum. Yeah, exactly. No question. Because the problem also is we we would never know what what the other path would have been. Meaning, had they had exactly. they, not, you know, it's a, yeah. it's the same question that we can always ask when you're talking about history or when you're talking about a movie or or life or anything like that. You know, what if you take mm -hmm. the other path? You know, the the road not taken yeah. or whatever. How much will it make a difference? I mean, Robert Frost said it will make a difference, but. You know, we, we don't know. We'll never know. It's the same thing when... when we'll never know, exactly. yeah. It's the yeah. same thing when, when, you're, when you're driving somewhere and you're using, you know, uh, some sort of GPS and the GPS tells you to turn one way. And you say to yourself, well, I usually go on this road, <laughs> but you'll never know which decision was the better decision, which was the more efficient exactly, decision. Yeah. Because yeah. You've, you've made your decision and you've moved along to, in that direction, whichever it is. Mm -hmm. And everything from that point changes. Correct, correct. Which, which is why I love time travel movies that that, that talk about these type of things. <laughs> but, you know, the, the the Great Escape is not a time travel movie. <laughs> not a time travel. Well, but, it, I mean, it this, is. It that... is because it takes us back to a different time and place to try to give us a perspective of something that 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 most people will never experience in their lives. Yeah. So in some ways, movies are time travel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why some of the details. That's why it's important to have. The scene in where where um, the making of the clothing is made, right. uh, because it's it's a kind of um, a response to extraordinary circumstances that that is impressive and interesting to to think about. Right, no question about um, that. And so, and the movie is is uh, filled with those scenes. But this this one here, I think, what's neat is that that Sturgis and James Clavell, the screenwriter, have have in a couple of lines of dialogue, maybe four or five seconds. Uh, have opened up this really big philosophical question that people connected to the escape have been have been talking about and thinking about for decades, and with just those two or three lines of dialogue, he's able to to suggest all of the different elements of it. I think that's brilliant. No question about that. I completely agree with you. Now, in the original script, I have I, I was able to get a copy of the original script that James Clavell wrote in I think it was April of '62. Yeah, the twenty sixth mm -hmm. of April sixty two. So a lot of, a lot was changed between this script and 
the final release of the film. Mm-hmm. But there's something that I find pretty essential that they, they cut out. That Ever since I've, I read this a few months ago, I've, I've been disappointed about the fact that they, they left it out of the movie or that it got cut out in the end. I mean, basically, the, the conversation with Henley continues at this point. He starts asking where are all the, German, the, the Germans? You know, where's Von Luger? Mm-hmm. Where's Werner? Where's Strathwitz? And the response is they've all been sent to the Eastern Front. So, I mean, again, we're, we're jumping a little ahead because, you know, tomorrow we'll talk more about what actually happened to Von Luger in the movie. But mm-hmm. I find it interesting that they mention that. And then we have Soren come up behind Henley. Soren, to remind everyone, he's another one of the recognizable characters who didn't make it out. He, he and Goff were the, were the next two to, to get out when, when, they, when they made the escape. And then they they, mm-hmm. they rushed back and were you know they they were the last ones out of the tunnel going backwards I guess you would say or, okay and so Soren at this point turns to Henley and says well I've been appointed the new big X there are a few things we'll need there's a meeting in the library tonight and Henley says all right I'll be there interesting I didn't know yes. that so for me that line is essential here and I'm very surprised mm-hmm. that they cut it out because basically what what Soren is saying here is that we've just had this tragedy, but we're continuing. We're not stopping. Mm-hmm. The, the the movie, from now until the end of the movie, it never really brings up the fact that that they're going to continue with everything that they've been doing. It makes it, mm-hmm. it, it leaves it very ambiguous as to, you know, what's going to happen now. Okay, they, they tried the escape, 76 got out, 50 got killed. We, we find out that the three made it, made it out alive. Yeah. And then the rest were all brought back. But But what happens after that? You know, what next? Yeah, and, that's a really good point. And to, to this this small little discussion between Soren and, and Henley opens up so many possibilities because they basically say, okay, back to the drawing board. We're going to now try and figure yeah. out because that's that is. I mean, you you can probably uh, attest to this. They they didn't stop at this point. They continued trying to get out. I mean, they, they there was there was a there was a fourth tunnel, George. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, they 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 continued. They rebuilt the organization and continued. Now there were there were um, the decision had been made that they were not going to do any more big escapes. Right. Um, but it was right back to uh, doing what they could in the camp to confound and confuse the uh, their captors right. uh, under a new big X under a new under new department head. So yeah, that it this this battle was over, but the war went on. Yeah, exactly. And then there's a slight, a small little scene right at the very end of this script that is also cut out, where they show the new X organization in the library, you know, having their first meeting or whatever it is. Mm. Which again, just having, just showing a shot of them all in the library again would have would have changed everything. It would have shown the the only way that this movie continues to show hope at the end is the fact that mm-hmm. you know Hiltz is, isn't broken and he's still you know, throwing the baseball against the wall. And yeah, that yeah. the guard realizes that, you know, he hasn't been able to, to they haven't been able to break him by capturing him again. Mm-hmm. And that that, that mm-hmm. is a great message. There's no question about that. But I think it would have been even more effective had they shown them reorganizing the X organization. Yeah, and getting ready to continue the... Uh... Uh, the fight. Yeah, but mm. we 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 didn't get to choose these things. That that was uh, that's all up to Sturgis and and everyone else. You know, almost sixty years ago, whatever they decided to do, <laughs> we're not going to be able to change that. And as I've said many times, I would never want them to remake this movie because there's there's no need. It's a near perfect movie so, as is. Exactly. Yeah, I will. I'll agree with you on that. Would have been a neat 
scene to have left in the part about the dialogue where he asks about the the what happened to the various Germans. Um, I actually think is is beautifully handled in in the film yeah, as it sure. is because you see, so um, there's this exchange between Ramsey and Henley, and then uh, the new commandant's car comes up, and this is this is the I think the second scene of this minute that that speaks volumes without saying something without saying volumes. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the minute that, that, that we got here is basically two very small scenes that say so much. Yeah. Henley then walks away and we see him, he looks as if he's pondering the, the question that Ramsey has given him about whether it was worth it or not. Mm-hmm. We see a German staff car show up. We, we see SS officer Steinach sitting in, in the car, which to remind everyone, he was the one who actually caught Bartlett a few, uh, I think two weeks ago. And he was also there in Gestapo office with, with Priesten, the other uh, German, the other Nazi that I always mm-hmm. forget his name, Dietrich. Dietrich. I don't know why. For some reason, I always think of him as Kramer. I don't know why. Okay. It's Dietrich. 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 <laughs> Dietrich, yes. Yeah. So Dietrich and Priesten, he's, he's there with them. He actually now comes to the camp. He's in the staff car. He stands up from the car, looks around. They open the car seat for him in order for him to get out from the, the back seat. Then he gets out and he walks towards the commandant's office and enters into the office. And then, then the door slams closed. And then we see Strachwitz run up and go up the steps towards the entrance of the commandant's office. And then he's about to open, he's about to get to the door and then he, you see him hesitate. Yeah. And then he starts looking around at, at all the other guards around there. And then that's basically the end of this minute where he's still pondering what to do. So that's, uh, I mean, that's such a key scene again yes uh, tons of stuff in a few seconds because the so in in the historical sense the um escapes from prison camps had been an increasing problem through 1943 and the german police organization uh the rsha had been angling for for ages to take over i mean they already ran the concentration camps they've been angling to take over the prison camps making the argument that, well, we're the ones who were, who were responsible for looking for these guys when they escape. If we ran the camps, they wouldn't escape in the first place. So they'd been pushing and pushing and pushing to take over the prison camps and were resisted by by uh, the army members, Keitel and, and Goering. Um, but the escape and the aftermath is is brings the change that is when the camps are turned over to the ss um and it's kind of the pinnacle of this power tra- power struggle between the old military members of the nazi hierarchy and the the police and security members so strachwitz pauses on the on the porch there uh and looks back and it's it's like he's seeing uh his world has changed because he's Luftwaffe. he's he's the old army the old military uh, uh, he's just been bypassed and, and the SS has breezed in and have taken over the show now. Uh, and that, that moment, which I don't think probably no POWs at the time realized, um, represents the, the, one of the critical, uh, outcomes of the escape, this changeover from military to, to security command, which, I mean, it could have been catastrophic, it it just so happened that the person put in charge of the camps on the SS end was uh, that rarity a decent SS officer, uh, <laughs> Gottlob Berger, uh, 
who in fact ran the camps uh, well and relatively humanely. Uh, but it could have uh, gone very badly for for the prisoners. But certainly that the that one scene, a few seconds of that scene, you see the change of the old the old world giving way to the new world, and the, and the, the SS is now in charge. Uh, and uh, end of story. So it's a great little scene. Wow. All right. Now I'm going to actually ask you a question that that, that we discussed months and months and months ago uh, on the show when we were trying to figure things out about the difference between. Uh, the camp being run by the Luftwaffe and the, or being run by the SS or being run by the Gestapo, whatever. I mean, we found it very strange, the fact that it, the, the Germans decided that the people who are going to be in charge of the Air Force prisoners are the Air Force, the Luftwaffe. And then, you know, the, the different camps will be run by the same branch of, of who, of, of the, the prisoners. Mm-hmm. So is that something... I mean, I, I've never heard of that type of thing before. I mean, you you never hear in in an American military prison that they, that they have, or possibly even in a Canadian one, where they will have, okay, you're in a an Air Force prison, or you're in a Marine prison, or you're in an Army prison, or a Navy prison, whatever. It, it everyone's thrown together, aren't they? Exactly. Yeah. This is this is a uniquely German solution in the Second World War to to allow each of the services to take care of its own prisoners. Um, and it, it has uh, um, good things and bad things about it. If you happen to be a naval prisoner, uh, your war is actually quite pleasant because the, the Kriegsmarine, the German Navy, has so few prisoners. There's one one camp, uh, and it's quite decent. Um, if you're on the other end with the army, then you're amongst the most numerous group. Um, and... Uh, your fortunes are a little more dire, but I think it, it's it's a result of the historic independence of the three services in Germany, uh, and the degree to which even in 1939 each of the services had enough power to um, kind of make the argument for keeping their own. Oh wow! Okay, that's actually very fascinating. Now, as I say, as of uh, the summer of 1944, that changes, but still, most prisoners wouldn't have recognized. The change. Did it change across the board, or it only changed in this in Stalag Luft Three? Changed across the board. The the entire German prison camp structure became under the control of the SS, uh-huh. uh, the Reich Main Security Office. And then they they mixed the prisoners up because like you just mentioned no, earlier, they they you left everything the naval, else the same. Right, because you said the naval prisoners were in a relatively decent camp because there weren't that many of them. Yeah. So. They still stayed in that same, under those same conditions at that point. They stayed there, and their commandant was a former uh, U-boat captain, and they, their guards were Navy men. It's just that the next level of command above them was the SS. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it makes for a strange uh, uh, kind of camp system and terribly inefficient. Um, but. <laughs> Apparently, I mean, uh, you could, we've discussed this throughout this entire uh, podcast about how inefficient it, it is to put all of your rotten eggs in one basket if you don't have a good enough security system around that. Because, you, know, mm-hmm. you know, they had people escaping, you know, in twos and threes up until then. And here you put everyone together and then you get this major breakout because you basically put all of your escape artists together. Yeah. So, and I mean, it it would have been different if they had had a an entire staff of uh, expert, experienced uh, security uh, guards. But but aside from the ferrets, people like Werner, 
um, the guards are kind of overage, uh, unfit, uninterested, uncommitted, uh, 50, 60 year olds, not the, the best, um, jailers for, for these young, enthusiastic, bright, smart, uh, uh, energetic young guys. Make, makes you wonder why they made the decision like that. I mean, I think it was, it was desperation. They had tried in, in the beginning of the war, they tried to, um, put their troublemakers in each of their camps, parcel them out. But that just meant they had, uh, every camp became a problem. So they figured, well, that didn't work. So let's take all the, all the rotten eggs. And as, as the commandant says in the film, let's take all the rotten eggs and put them in one basket. Um, I mean, I suppose from their perspective, it was worth a try because the, the status quo wasn't working. Okay. So we, we've been talking about the, the history or whatever. So what's, what's your history with both this movie and with the idea of POWs during World War II? Like what, what got you involved <laughs> in this whole thing? You know, we don't uh, have we don't have six hours to talk about it, but no, uh, I shall yeah. make this brief. Uh, <laughs> no, but it, it fascinates me, and I'm sure our listeners also would would be interested to know. You know, why why would someone choose to go into a career like this? Yeah, well, it was it started off accidentally. My mother uh, read all these books, so I remember them lying around the house when I was a kid. And when I was probably ten, ten or eleven, um, the movie came on. Uh, TV and she said, uh, "Oh, you should you should watch that. It's a, it's an I've read the book. It's an interesting film. So uh, I watched it. It happened to sh it happened to be broadcast on uh, Victoria Day, which in Canada is a is a great holiday. And there's always fireworks on Victoria Day evening. Uh, and every Victoria Day, my sister and I would and our friends would get onto the park to watch the fireworks. And I started watching this film. And as soon as the music came up, I was hooked. Uh, and I remember I was sitting." upstairs in my parents' bedroom with my eyes glued to the TV and my sister was downstairs yelling at me to come to the fireworks. And I was not moving until the film was over. I was, I was transfixed. So from that point, I became uh, weirdly obsessed uh, as teenagers sometimes do. Uh, and I started to get in touch with ex-prisoners and they were remarkably tolerant with a, uh, this geeky Canadian kid. With a 10 year old kid. They brought, they invited me to their, their homes to meet them, to their reunions. Uh, I traveled around Canada and, and the UK talking to them. Well, what, what, wait, as a kid, you traveled into the UK? Yeah. Wow. Uh, my parents took me so we could meet some of these people. When, when was this? This was the late seventies, early eighties. This would have been 73, 74, 75 around there. Uh -huh. Okay. Wow. Uh, so, and at that time in the, in the 70s, a lot of the key players were still alive. Um, people who were, who were deeply involved in the escape. Um, one of the first guys I met was a guy named Harry Day, who was the, uh, a legendary escaper, who was a wonderful uh, guy. And so by the time I actually realized you could do serious research on this, I had really good connections in, in the XLOF3 community. Wow. Um, and then I decided, well, you know, I, I, maybe I should do something. So I'll, I'll write a book about it. Uh, and I spent, uh, uh, years tracking down the, not only the survivors, but the, the families of the, those who were killed. Uh, and so I ran, went around the world, uh, to see them and interview them and get their story and, and find out about their, 
uh, relatives. And that eventually was the, uh, produced the book I wrote, uh, originally called A Gallant Company, and later I think it's The True Story of the Great Escape. Uh, so at some point I realized that, that what was a childhood hobby you could actually turn into a job. Yeah, and definitely. I was hugely lucky to be able to to become a professional historian and and get paid to do what I would normally what I would do otherwise as a hobby. Yeah, for sure. So wow, that is so fascinating. Now wait, so your 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 PhD thesis is also about the, the Great Escape, or that you chose something else? It's about um, the. It's more about the aid campaign for for. Uh, prison camps, the Red International Red Cross and and uh, philanthropic organizations. Mm, okay, we, we had an episode months ago that we talked all about that about all the okay. different things that the the Red Cross was able to smuggle into exactly uh, into the camp. But I and we talked we talked immensely about all the different sports. I, I actually yeah. found a, an article about sports in the prison camps, and it was just astounding to to read how many different baseball teams and football teams and basketball teams they had just in Stalag Lift 3. It was amazing. Like, they they had, had like 200 baseball teams or something yeah. like that. And they had a full theater and orchestra and yeah. it was it was remarkable. Um, but that research actually brought me the the uh, a curious connection to this, this film, which was a real surprise. Uh, I did my PhD at York University in Toronto in the in the 90s. And one of my professors was a guy named Michael Cater who did, does German history, wonderful historian, a really good guy. And as I was finishing the program, he came up to me and said, look, I'm going to be on your dissertation examining committee, uh, and which seemed odd to me. And he said, um, you know, why don't you? And he had this big smile on his face. He said, because I was in The Great Escape. And so Whoa. I talked to him about it. And the so in this scene with that begins with Hendley and Nimmo, you see the ranks of prisoners behind there. So they're all... Uh, students at Heidelberg University in Germany. And Michael Cater was an undergraduate uh, when the film was being made. And um, they got an invitation from the filmmakers to, uh, for all the young men in Heidelberg University to go out to the film site on these days and, and be extras in this film. Uh, and so his connection to the to the film was was being one of the massive prisoners who were in the background. Wait, not one of the, not one of the ones who came back. One of the ones that were already there, right? He's yeah. He is just a face in the crowd. Uh, you, can you are you able to point to? Are you able to, to see him or no? Because he had he's he's his one great tragedy. He told me this. <laughs> he was he was given the uniform of a Rhodesian airman. So uh, RAF blue, but the Rhodesia um, shoulder tab. And there was, he had one scene in which he appeared with, I think it was with James Garner. Um, and, but he was saddened that the scene never made it to the film. It ended up on the cutting room floor. Oh, so wow. the only time when we, we could actually see him in the film uh, was edited out, which was very, I thought was very sad for Michael. Um, however, it's interesting to know that, that everyone in the background are, are, uh, all the extras are are German university students. Wow, and, and that that's amazing that that you know luck of the draw gave you this particular minute where he apparently is there. Exactly. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Weirdest thing. So. Yeah. Wow. Fate, but I would fate. love to have seen this one scene. Yeah, that that uh, I, I I don't think that will be possible to to try and find the that that edited out scene. 
That would that uh-huh. would be amazing if we were able to find them some of those. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So it just goes to show you there are weird connections all over the place. For sure, for sure. Wow. Okay. Do you have any other interesting tales about the, either the movie or the real escape that you think our listeners might want to hear about? I got millions of tales, Rob, but I not I, millions. I, just I won't go on forever. <laughs> no. Well, you know, we'll let people you know get in touch with you if they want to afterwards. You know. To, to, to sit and pick your brain. That, that would be great. I mean, the, the so the, the thing, I love the film. I mean, and I can um, accept the historical inaccuracies, uh, which are, of which there are many. The, the one thing that I think is really neat about it is the, is the physical reconstruction of the camp itself, um, which was done with enormous care and, and sensitivity. So despite the fact that all of the actors look a little too healthy uh, to be prisoners and the sun's always shining a little too much uh, and it's always a little too pleasant temperature, when you see the film, you're seeing uh, a remarkably accurate reconstruction of what the camp looked like. Uh, And I think that's a terrific uh, achievement for Sturgis to, to have brought in to the set uh, people who were there in 1943 and 44 to say, look, that's wrong. Uh, you should make that that way. Uh, change these bunks, move that door to the other side, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he had Wally Floody on site there to to correct any errors that came up in the in the set construction, which I think is beautiful like this. So maybe that's my favorite thing about the film is that it is a kind of time capsule. You are, you're going back to 1963, but you're also going back to 1943. Right. Uh, and and seeing the the environment that these uh, young men lived in, I think that's a, a remarkable achievement. Yeah, were you ever were, were you ever able to meet uh, Wally Floody? Oh yeah, yeah. Wally Floody was a a, a remarkable fellow, a uh, huge uh, uh, big bear of a guy. His his lungs had been largely ruined by digging tunnels, um, uh, and smoking, of course. But the digging tunnels didn't help. Yeah, <laughs> he was a. Um, a, a gregarious, delightful, um, uh, big-hearted guy couldn't do enough for you. Um, as as a lot of these fellows were, they were they were. Uh, it was terrific to meet this generation, uh, even if they were in their declining years uh, at that time. Uh, and Floody was one of the uh, one of the giants physically as well as uh, uh, kind of emotionally. Wow. Okay. Very interesting. And I wanted to also ask him. I mean, it was it was great because the the survivors. I talked to almost all the survivors of the escape, uh, and they tended to have a remarkable outlook because they they believed that they when they were shot down they cheated death for the first time, and when they escaped and survived they cheated death for the second time, and so they tended to see all of their life after 1944 as a, as a remarkable gift uh, that they had, had been given through sheer good fortune. Um, and it was, it was amazing to see them. I, I saw the, the uh, one of the Norwegians who uh, escaped sex successfully to, to Sweden. Um, a lot of, saw a lot of guys who were, who were recaptured 10 miles from the camp in the snow. 12 hours later and they all had this incredible zest for life because i think they they realized they had been given a second and a third chance uh and they made their they made the most of it which was really neat 
Wow. Yeah, I think that 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 is a, a great message from them. You know, to 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 live your life to the fullest, even after these type of things. And then there was one guy who who had been. <laughs> Uh, he had been shot down three times, I think, and after he was demobilized in 1945, he never flew again because he figured he'd, had, he'd used up all his luck in the air. <laughs> so he never flew. He lived till he was 90 or something, and, and if he couldn't get there by train, he wasn't going. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. I can see that too. Yeah. How, how many Canadians were? There were nine Canadians in the escape who actually got out of the camp. Uh, six of them were executed. Uh, and the other three I was in uh, touch with. Um, and uh, one of them was the fellow who was uh, Tommy Thompson, who was captured in the uh, right at the beginning of the war. So he was a prisoner from September 1939 until uh, May 1945. Wow. And this was just one of his, his escapes. Uh, he actually met uh, uh, Herman Goering early in his captivity because he was one of the first... He and his pilot one of the first prisoners shot down. Ah, he wasn't a pilot? He was a uh, an observer, I think. Mm. Uh, his pilot survived, too. His pilot was in the camp. Uh, you see him in the books. His name was Murray, Wank Murray. Um, and they were taken of it to, for an audience with Herman Goering because he was, uh, he was tickled to meet um, some of these early prisoners. And he was also, in, also interested in Canadian ice hockey. Uh, so he wanted to meet a Canadian. But... That actually reminds me of another uh, another point that I wanted to, to uh, squeeze in uh, that I thought about earlier, and that was when the and this is this is where the the aftermath of the escape kind of boggles the imagination. So one of the reasons why the military was so opposed to these executions was because of their their kind of very traditional uh, understanding of military honor. And they didn't want the the, the blood of uh, these prisoners on their hands. Now, keep in mind, the army is responsible for untold atrocities uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> everywhere that they went. So it's not like the army has clean hands. But if you look at what, what Hermann Goering said, the, the head of the Luftwaffe, Keitel, the head of the, the uh, OKW, the military high command, other guys who are the old military school, these are people who were implicated in, in atrocities of terrifying extent. The one thing that bothers them in 1945 when they face the, the war crimes trials, the one thing that bothers them is the execution of these 50 airmen. Uh, because they're not too because they knew that this was unjustified? Because that's it, it violated their military honor, their, their old code of honor. Uh, so slaughtering civilians in Russia, eh. It happens. Uh, laying waste to to uh, villages of resistors, uh, um, horrific acts of violence. They look past that, but to execute these 50 uh, Air Force officers, that's the what Goering says, this is the one thing I knew I was going to pay for. He figures that he's brought up to Nuremberg for this crime alone. All the other stuff he doesn't care about, but this thing is what bothers him. I think that's quite astonishing. Yeah, seriously. Wow. Uh, to, it, it, it points out the really twisted uh, values of these individuals. That that this was the one thing yeah. that they that kept them awake at night. Yeah. Well, at least something kept them awake. It means that they, they you know, yeah. as, as Muncher <laughs> says, they were they, they they still had a conscience somewhere, uh -huh. despite the fact that they turned it off. You know. And it's it seems that we talked about the aftermath and who did the choosing of the names. It seems that the the um, police official 
who actually made the the choices looking at the identification photos of the individuals, it seems that he was so disturbed by that. This was a man who was, again, implicated in all sorts of other atrocities, but not in a, in a personal sense. It seems that he was so bothered by this that he eventually joined the, the July plot against Hitler uh, oh, wow. and was executed for, for turning against the regime that had uh, created him. So, again... Wow. Um, <laughs> Was it worth it? Yeah, I think it, it definitely was. Yeah, basically sounds that way. All right, now one last thing I wanted to ask you as a Canadian. Mm-hmm. Okay, now the the character of Haynes is supposed to be Canadian, and you know a lot has been said about the fact that James Coburn gives <laughs> a terrible Australian accent. Now the question is, is do you think that that Lawrence Mon Mon? Ah, I always have trouble pronouncing his last name. Uh, forgive me, anyone who's listening who knows him. Okay, so Lawrence Montaigne, I think his uh-huh. name was, who played Haynes. What did you think about his Canadian accent where he would throw in yeah. his a boot? Uh, <laughs> I think it's kind of cute. I don't know about it, anything else about his background, but I think it's kind of cute because it's, uh, I mean, when you make a film like this, it's about identifiable, identifiable characteristics, uh, stereotypical characteristics, and how more stereotypical than the than the Canadians going out in a boot. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I, I grew up in Detroit, so I'm, okay, there you I'm, go. I'm very familiar. I'm, I'm familiar with it. I had, you understand I how we talk, so <laughs> I had classmates from Windsor. Uh-huh. We, we we knew how to you know we knew how to make fun you know of how them. to interpret them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, make fun of them and interpret them at the same time. <laughs> very good. This has been so enlightening and so fascinating. I've learned a lot. Hopefully, all of our listeners have also learned many new things from you. Do you want to tell people how they can get in touch with you if they're interested? How can they find you? If anyone wants to uh, get in touch with me, you can you can reach me at the University of Western Ontario, where uh, I teach. Um, the my all my contact information, uh, uh, email, mailing address, telephone is on the history department website. Uh, you can find all. I'm happy to to answer any questions because uh, uh, this is the first project that I did as a historian, and it's the one that's still. Uh, sticks with me, so I can't can't get enough of it. Seriously, almost fifty years you've been yep. dealing with with the the Great Escape, and that, that's just an exactly. amazing amazing that you were able to turn this hobby into a, into a profession and still enjoy it and get paid for it. I'm forever grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, you have to say thank you to your mother who uh, who who who, I know. who sent you to the to to her room to watch the movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Go to your room and watch this movie. We all wish. And she launched me on a career, so right. perfect. <laughs> That's very true. All right. Well, while you're doing that, you go rate, review, and subscribe on any podcatcher that you might be using to listen to this show. You can contact us. Our website is thegreatescapeminute.com. Our email address is thegreatminute at gmail.com. Our Facebook group is The Cooler. And our Twitter account is greatescapemxm. So until tomorrow when we will have another special guest, tally-ho. Tally-ho. Tally-ho.